0: Welcome to the Apartment Operators Podcast, where you can learn from experienced operators what it really means to be an apartment operator. No fluff, no sugarcoating, just the raw, unfiltered truth of the ups and downs of operating multifamily communities.
1: Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Operators Podcast. Today, we have a very special guest, JC Castillo. Thank you for joining.
0: Hey, thanks a lot for having me. I appreciate it.
1: Awesome. Well, we start the program usually with just the guest giving last three, four minutes of who you are, what you're doing, uh, what you've been doing so far, how your portfolio looks like. Give us a little bit of a background.
0: Yeah, sure. So uh, our company is called uh, Multifamily Property Group, and we've been around for the last 13 years. I started the company in 2006, and um, we've transacted over 1,000 units um, since the company was formed. And uh, we are a vertically integrated uh, private equity shop. That means that we um, not only do we, we, we buy and reposition uh, the apartment assets, but we also um, operate them ourselves with our own in-house uh, management company. And uh, we currently have a portfolio of about 725 doors, um, somewhere around $70 million in assets under management.
1: That's phenomenal. That's great. Um, so. B, C class, A class, what kind of class do you guys like? Where in the country are you located?
0: Yeah. um, So we are, uh, we're based, uh, in the Silicon Valley. Uh, that's where I'm located. Um, but we operate, um, and buy properties in the Dallas, Fort Worth, uh, Metroplex in Texas. And we've been there, um, you know, since the company was started, that's, that's where we've been buying our deals. And, um. And we are focused on uh, B and C class assets. But I would say that as of um, you know, the last uh, few years, we've really started to migrate uh, up in the asset stack, uh, class stack to uh, B properties. And we're sort of um, shying a little bit further away from the C properties.
1: Okay. You just gave me the first question. <laughs> Why Good. is that?
0: Well, um, because what we, we see happening in the market at this point in the maturity of, of the economic cycle, and we've had a really great run, is that um, we see that the C-class property and the C-class demographic of renters are historically paying the highest rents that they've ever paid at these properties. And if you look at uh, you know, the last five or six years, actually, the C-class properties have performed the best out of any of the asset classes, including A and B. Um, However, um, as we reach the point in the economic cycle where historically the the uh, C-class blue-collar folks are paying the highest um, rents they've ever paid, then if there was an economic shock to the system or or a small downturn, we feel like they'll be a little bit less able to withstand um, that economic shock because, let's face it, they're living a little bit more, let's say, paycheck to paycheck. Mm -hmm. And so we want to be a little bit more insulated from that C-class stock. And we want to sort of move up into the B class where we got a little bit more of what we would call a a gray collar demographic or tenant base. So maybe not necessarily an engineer working at Google, um, but certainly someone who is a little bit less prone to um, paycheck to paycheck type of situations. And also the quality of the B class asset too, we want to step up away a little bit more from that that C class stock, which is typically going to be your 1970s and earlier uh, vintage um, and you know, and on the A side, we we really don't want to be in the A space, um, mostly because we feel like there's been a lot of supply that's come online over the last few years, um, and 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 so we feel like if you're in the A-minus uh, stock, um, you may be a little bit more in the crosshairs of uh, a concessionary period where the brand new uh, A-class stock that's coming online may be competing with you a little bit more. But in the B-class side there's a definitely a much, much bigger of a delta between uh, A plus uh, rents and B rents so that we're not gonna be in the crosshairs as much um, for those concessionary periods. So really it's more for us, moving to B is more of a protective measure um, at this point in the economic uh, cycle.
1: That's interesting. Um, Before I ask you the follow-up question about um, the B class assets, Just a couple of words for our listeners. You mentioned concessionary crosshairs, right? Uh, I'm guessing and I'm assuming you you mean uh, the new class that are being built. As they lease up, they usually give a lot of concessions like a free month or the first six weeks off or 50 bucks off, whatever the concession is for that market uh, in order to draw the crowd in. And that's really where the A minus, which was the A of two years ago, really, right? Or, or three years ago, that's where they're going to be a direct competition because why would I rent for $1,200 here when I can rent for $1,300 over there, but get a free month, which basically means it's the same rent,
0: right? You, you pretty much hit the nail on the head. That's exactly the, the, the point. And with a, with a B-class product and your same example, that's probably going to be more like a let's say like a $500 Delta, which is just going to be uh, too much for the B-class person to, um, for the most part, again, this is all relative, but too much for the most part for the B-class to go up into the A-class and say, I'm going to go ahead and take that, you know, that highly concessioned out um, brand new A-product.
1: Yeah, and and that totally makes sense. So I want to go back to your decision to go to the B-class. And I usually hear that, from experienced operators, right? After they've done about a decade worth of apartment complexes, they want to move from the C to the B. Um, We had Andrew Cushman on the show, and he had the exact same sentimental. But mostly we hear that people don't want to deal with the older asset class from the maintenance perspective. It's the first time I, I hear someone talking about the economic side of things, which totally makes sense. Uh, but what about the, the, the maintenance and the physical aspect of C-Class? Is that another driver for you guys, moving away from the C-Class into the B-Class?
0: Yeah, you know, I think it is a driver for sure. I mean, it, absolutely. I mean, if you look at the B-stock that we have versus the C-stock that we have, we definitely see a higher percentage of the uh, revenue coming in that's being spent on expenses to upkeep the property. Because you know, let's face it, it's 15 to 30 years older um, than the B-Class product. So yeah, that certainly is a factor. However, I would say that it's not a showstopper because ultimately we underwrite deals uh, with the knowledge of it being a C-class property. So if we know it's a C-class property, we're gonna underwrite a certain increased amount of, of uh, upkeep on the property for, for wear and tear. Um, and you know we've got a pretty good system uh, behind the scenes to take care of that C product. But yeah, all things being equal, um, certainly it's it would be preferred to have something with less uh, wear and tear on it.
1: That makes sense. So uh, you mentioned earlier that you guys are vertically integrated and you have your own management company. Did you start off with your own property management company?
0: Um, You know, we didn't because when we first started off, we were just a little bit too small. But in the back of my mind, I always kind of figured that that would be our path forward once we scaled out big enough. Um, And so, uh, you know, I think that starting up our own shop, we started in 2013. So we've been going at it for probably about, I think, six years now as a, um, a vertically integrated shop with our own management company. And I think that you know, uh, what we've seen over the last six years is we've seen some, some advantages in terms of a, um, more of a predictable output um, from the property management uh, piece or the operational piece. Um, I think that when we first started it, you know, obviously, we, we felt like we could build a better mousetrap. And in some respects, I think that we have succeeded in that. But in a lot of other ways, we have the same constraints on the operational side as any third-party management company. So um, I think that while um, you may want to get into the third-party management or you know build your own shop out because you feel like it's um, a challenge using third-party, I think that usually ends up being a little bit less of the um, perceived advantage once you actually do it. I think the bigger advantage is just there's an extremely large amount of efficiency that's built in when you have everything under one shop. And there's also an extremely large amount of predictability because I can go back um, whenever we're going to buy a new property, I can go back to all my records with all our existing properties and I can get very, very accurate in terms of how we're going to model an operation uh, with a new takeover. And all that goes back to our investors. When we commit to a set of pro forma financials for the investors, I feel like and what I've seen is that our predictability has increased uh, significantly more with the shop in-house because of all the historical data that we can put uh, into uh, into bear. And also the process is very strict and tight uh, against our own uh, process because it is our process. And so I think that's really the big advantage because at the end of the day, what the investors care about, whether you use third party or you don't, is, um, you know, can you hit your pro forma model? And is it predictable? That's that's what investors care about. So we lessen the risk by doing it that way.
1: That, that makes a lot of sense. So uh, what was the threshold? Uh, what was the trigger to start your own management company?
0: Well, if I can think back in time, I think the biggest thing the threshold was the first threshold is especially when you're like me, who's 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 going to build out a property management shop that's Um, And completely in a different part of the United States, you know, you think about it, I'm here in San Jose, California, and I built a property management company in Dallas. Um, So I truly am, uh, you know, completely isolated and and removed from the property management. So the first thing you have to do is be is be able to find uh, a superstar person that can build the team up from from basically nothing. Uh, And that's a rare quality, because if you've already got scale, And you've got enough money to pay somebody big money uh, to hire a a VP of operations or an executive of operations. That's actually probably in some ways a little bit easier um, because you can hire somebody to take over. That's already got a track record, but it's kind of like a startup company. You, you know, that, that, that big polished executive that can take over a big shop. That's not the same person that's going to be able to build your shop up from ground zero. Um, And at the same time, um, you, you can't just, you know, get a, a person that's managing your property as an on-site community director and expect them to be able to put together a property management company either because they have nowhere near the skill set. So in a lot of ways, I got really lucky. I, found, I think I found the needle in the haystack, that one person that could be both, could be turned into that executive polished person, but also sort of knows how to take a startup company's approach and really build something from scrap. And turn it into something along with, obviously I did a lot of heavy lifting too, but really the magic of what we created, I think really rests with that one person that really took this thing and ran with it. And so the second part of that is, you know, uh, what's the the number or the scale we need to be at? Well, if you think about it, if you've got, you know, enough of a, of a revenue coming in from, let's say your typical management fees to pay for that one person that's going to start your company up, then that's basically where you need to be at. Obviously, whatever that person's salary is going to be, you've got to be able to at least bring that into the company to justify starting your own place up.
1: Mm-hmm. So, um, what preceded what? Uh, the number of units or the right person?
0: The right person starts everything. Okay. Without the right person, it wouldn't have mattered whether we had enough scale or not. We just wouldn't have done it because that that that's the make or break piece.
1: That sounds great. Um, How did you come about to find that person?
0: Well, that person was working at a different management company. And uh, I had met that person a couple times. And, um, you know, I guess one of the strengths that I have is I've always, I think I've always been able to identify superstar talent. um, And really, you know, our company is less about me. It's more about the, the team that we put together. Mm -hmm. And I I just, I saw the potential in this person almost right away. And so I I just pretty much, I was hell bent on putting together a plan to get this person on the team. And uh, thankfully we were able to make it happen.
1: Okay. And and I'm going to keep asking questions about that because that's a subject that interests a lot of our listeners. And we get a lot of questions about that. So you found that superstars of yours and what's next?
0: Well, um, I think the first thing that you have to do is you've, you've, you've got to basically standardize around a, um, a set of tools that you're going to use and implement uh, in your company. For example, first thing we had to do was standardize on a software platform that we were going to use to build out our company. Um, the second thing that you need to do is start to build out a set of um, uh, procedures and processes uh, for, you know, how you're going to, um, operate the company, how you're going to manage the properties, um, and, and how you're going to service the customers, which we call our residents, our customers, because we, we think that's a better name for them because they do have a choice, uh, when it comes to living at our property or not. Um, but those are the, some of the high level things that I think are super critical to, um, putting together a company like that. Obviously there's a lot of blocking and tackling. I mean, you've got to have a significant buffer in place for reserves because you're going to carry a payroll now because you're paying all of the staff, right? Mm-hmm. And you, you even though you bill back the property for most of the payroll, you've got to be able to float that for you know a little bit until you can bill back. Um, liability is a big thing. You've got to be able to set up your, um, your insurance companies, uh, You know all the liability that you've got to carry for the property. And also, super critical, you've got to make sure that your uh, management agreements um, are, are airtight, um, all around a lot of different things, but includes, including making sure that the, uh, the named insurance companies that are carrying the coverage on the properties also are required to co insure uh, your property management company in, so- in case something really bad happens, because obviously, um, you want that protection as well from on your management company side.
1: Absolutely. So that leads me to another question. Do you fee manage or do you just manage your own properties?
0: So that's a strategic decision, I think, that everybody has to make uh, when, they, when, when they endeavor to do this. Um, we have decided to only manage our own properties. And the reason why is because um, we figured out that um, the management property business, unless you scale it very, very large, isn't a real big profit center. It's just not. Um, if I could look back the last six years, I really haven't made all that much money. Uh, having our own management shop, um, but what we what we do have is we have greater predictability, which I believe has increased our um, our ownership uh, profits, um, both operationally and also uh, exiting the property with 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 uh, with, with good equity. So um, really, for me. It's less about the property management company and more about the overall um, vertically integrated uh, private equity shop and how we're able to do, I think, a better
1: job by doing it this way. That's, a, that, that's really a good, very good lesson. Um, most of the operators we talk to that have built their own property management company did the same decision that you made. But you're absolutely right. It's a very strategic decision. And I've always said that uh, property management is more brain damage than a profit. Uh, the only reason most of the operators chose to open their own property management is uh, brand control, quality control, like you said, predictability earlier. Uh, uh, these are all great, uh, good examples.
0: Yeah. And I think that eventually if you keep growing your company, eventually you, you come to the crossroads of, of having to make that decision. Um, there's only a few companies that I've seen that have gotten really big that have been able to leverage a third party strategy and make it work. Typically, what I see that happens, and the only way that you can do that and keep growing to a very large uh, point is if you become strategically a much higher percentage of that property management company's business. So, mm-hmm. meaning, if I have, let's say, five thousand or ten thousand doors uh, under my company, and I and I give all that to one management company to manage third party, and I and I am probably like sixty or seventy percent of their revenue base. And obviously that's almost like having your own shop because you call the shots. The problem becomes when you're that big and you're only, let's say 25% of their business, then it's really hard to sort of have that predictability, have that control, have that customer quality control that you're talking about. Um, And in a lot of rare cases you can, but it gets a lot more challenging when you, when you, when you get diluted as a total percentage of that uh, management company's business. So where I've seen, operators be successful in it is where I've seen them partner deeply with one shop and they just become a huge piece of their business to where that guy's basically modeling their company after whatever you need them to do.
1: Yeah, we we just recently recorded a a podcast with Kenny Wolf and Kenny was at that point where he wanted his own shop and he made a little bit different strategic decision. It's very much in line with what you just described, but instead of just being the big percentage of their business, he went in and he bought 49% of somebody else's uh, property management companies. So uh, he gets a little piece of, of the action, but the most important thing for him is being part of the ownership structure gives him that control and then all the benefits that you just mentioned. So. Uh, yeah, you another way to do it.
0: You're totally right. I know Kenny, and uh, and I've I've we've we we we, we talked about this uh, uh, before, during, and after. And you're right. That's exactly his mentality, and I think it was a great move on his part.
1: Yeah, absolutely. They're actually uh, buying another property management company in Ohio, which is a new market they started expanding into. Uh, so he's he's going to be very big very soon yeah he's gonna be uh, he's gonna be really busy too <laughs> oh yeah that's for sure uh so, so that's a good segue to uh, owning your own management company and i'm assuming uh you probably have a team members that help with asset management and you have uh investors relations give us a little bit of a highlight of how does your organization look like today and how did you kind of build it up? Because I'm sure you didn't hire multiple people day one, right? Yeah. Uh, so uh, how I, does I it say, look
0: like? yeah. I mean, I say that I've been at this for 13 years, and uh, I've I think I did the math, and I found about on average about one superstar every four years to five years. So right now, I have three uh, principal partners at the company. And, um, in each person it's taken, it took me a long time to find each person. Um, so yeah, over 13 years you, 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 and I'm not, I mean, obviously we have a lot more people that work for us, Mm -hmm. but I'm saying, you know, the the real, the the key, uh, people, uh, those really come around very infrequently. But, um, one of the things that I think strategically that you have to think about when you're going to build out a private equity shop, like, like what we do, like an operations shop is, You got to think about what you want to be and and how you're going to go about doing your business. One of the things that's unique about us is we are, um, we're one of those few shops that doesn't turn deals very frequently. We tend to buy deals and we want to hold them for, you know, 10 to 12 years if we can. That's not to say we won't sell deals and exit early if the, if the numbers make sense because we always, we're always looking out for our investors' best interest. But because we've been through a recession and I started buying properties before the 2008 recession and I bought them you know, during the recession and after the recession, um, we learned a lot, I think a lot more from the recession than we did from, from the recovery. And one of the things that, that I personally learned is that going long with investments typically turns out uh, really well but also protects you from the risk of a short-sighted uh, approach if there is an unforeseen downturn. Um, and so when we built out our company, we really built it with a long-term approach to investing. So we, uh, uh, we specifically look to partner with private equity or investors, uh, high net worth clients that are looking to go a little bit more longer in the tooth when it comes to investing. You know, like they think like us, hey, I want to be in a deal for a long time. I want cash flow. Equity is great, and equity is going to be there. But equity is going to be there in ten years, just like it's going to be there in five years. Okay. Um, so, and on the on the um, on the shop side, what we what we did was we were very careful about putting people on the payroll, just for the sake of being able to have somebody that's under asset management, somebody that's under uh, underwriting. So, so all these people with payroll means when you're an operator, you've got to pay the payroll no matter whether you're transacting or not. Yes. And so. But if we're a long-term-minded company who's really focused on just doing quality deals and letting them sit for a while, it doesn't make a lot of sense for us to have a high amount of payroll that's always transacting deals because that's why you need them if you transact a lot of deals. Mm-hmm. But for us, what we instead did was we decided to go really light on people that were on the payroll and instead only really partner with people that in a way had a partnership stake and really no, no tangible payroll Really on the on the um, private equity side, um, so that we weren't beholden to have to turn deals because we have because we have to keep the light bills light you know the light the lights on. And so what you'll see with our shop is we're pretty lean when it comes to the um, the private equity shop side or the operator side, and that's intentionally done so that we can sit on like we can literally not do a deal for the next year if we don't want to. And there's nothing's going to change about our company. But if it's a great deal and we like it, we're going to do it. Um, so that's the way we've set up. But other people that may be transacting deals every three to five years, exiting a lot quicker. That's really not going to be as easy to do because it takes a lot more people um, to, you know, turn the crank uh, when that's the way that your company is set up. So really, it really depends on how you build your, 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 your shop out is what type of a syndication or operations company do you, do you want to be.
1: Interesting. Okay. So what does it mean for you on on the current status? Do do you have, you mentioned three, four superstars. What are their roles?
0: Well, um, we're, we're very, very simply broken out. So um, I myself am the managing director, uh, managing principal. So um, basically, you know, I, I kind of, Oversee uh, the day to day operations as well as all of the acquisition reposition efforts. And we have three people that work with us three, uh, three, three partners. So we've got the vice president of capital funding and acquisitions. So that person is in charge of investor relations, raising money for deals, and finding the new deals. And then we have a vice president of repositions. So that person is in charge of once we close the deal up and the keys get handed over to us. That person takes the keys and they do everything at the property, including uh, rebranding, um, you know, uh, renovations, um, unit upgrades, um, everything that goes hand in hand with how we take the property from whatever it is to what it's going to become. That's what they're in charge of. And then we have the vice president of operations. And so that person is in charge of the management company and they basically oversee all of the operations once we take over the property.
1: That so it's sounds, three
0: people very cleanly laid out.
1: That sounds very logical uh, split, right? And, and so from what I hear, you're the, the person in the middle, the one that's in charge of repositioning, uh, it sounds like you built around value add, right? Finding a property that is underperforming for whatever reason, doing some value add and and then uh, stabilizing it at a much higher noi so uh, give us a few things that you guys like to do on the properties you buy other than the obvious raise rent right because that's the easy one that's what everybody is trying to do but usually it requires something right to be done uh whether it's renovating whether it's management play uh, give us two, three things that are not as common that you guys like to do.
0: Yeah, so I mean, I think you know the 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 one's not as common. I mean, I think we we take a very high level, simple approach to a reposition, and we don't call it a renovation; we call it a reposition because reposition includes a lot more things than just slapping some paint on the bricks and making it a different color because that everybody can do that. Um, well, at least I should say most people can do that. Um, but reposition includes, uh, uh, three things. Uh, one, it includes, uh, rebranding the property. So that includes things like, uh, you know, renaming it, um, coming up with new signage, new marketing, a brand new website, a brand new look and feel to the sales collateral, all that stuff. Right. Mm-hmm. Number two is going to be your, your rehab. And that's going to include things like, um, rehabbing the, um, the amenities, uh, changing the exterior, Um, you know, changing the, the look of the leasing office, maybe we'll blow out some walls. Uh, Maybe we'll change the outside of the leasing office. So it's more inviting. And then the last thing is, um, which I think is really important that I think some people take it to the right level, but a lot of people don't is the unit upgrades themselves because we get so caught up in, you know, the amenities race wars, as I like to call them, but we forget that the the renter is actually going to be more interested a lot of times in how their unit's going to look. So we actually get pretty um, detailed and specific about how we upgrade uh, units. We we actually have uh, for e- each and every floor plan, for example, we come out with an Excel sheet that is a specification that that calls exactly out what happens per floor plan. To like I'm telling you, like to the penny, how much we're spending and and what things get done to each layout, so that we have basically uh, a a repeatable format for the upgrades, so that the quality is there every time we do an upgrade. Because the worst thing, if you've ever, especially if you're in the operations piece like we are, so we have a management company, is when you put a model unit together, and that model unit looks amazing, right? Let's say that it has granite countertops and it's got you know stainless steel appliances and all this other stuff. And then because you're not detailed or because you just don't think it's a big deal, you start doing things to the upgrade units that are less quality finish out. Like for example, let's say that you've got stainless steel in your model unit, and in your regular upgrade units that you're you're actually renting out, they're black appliances. Or let's say that they're not granite countertops, you just spray the countertops and the ones that you're renting out. Well, the the, the prospects, they actually see that stuff right away. Mm -hmm. And it's it's kind of like, you know, people can see right through that that kind of like fake sales stuff and that's where you get blown up on your bad reviews online and stuff. And that's where it all kind of spirals out. And I think a lot of people don't understand that when you cut those corners, it's really a short sighted approach. And so when we're specific, when I say about the unit upgrades, that means that when you walk into our model unit and you walk into yours and you're going to live there. There's not supposed to be any difference whatsoever. Everything is there. Everything's the same. Everything's repeatable. And I think that's really what kind of, um, that's the magic of the other piece that we do with our upgrades is that we're very, very, I would use the word maniacal um, about how we make sure that the upgrade units are done to specifications um, throughout the life cycle of the deal.
1: No, I totally agree with you. It's, it goes beyond just the uh getting a bad review it's starting a relationship on the wrong foot because when you bring uh we call them residents uh, you call them customers we never call them tenants right um uh, when we get them into the unit when we move them in it's got to be a happy day it's got to be a smooth transition it's got to be a good experience because otherwise you're starting the whole thing on the wrong foot and then there's going to be complaints, and there's going to be bad reviews, and they're not going to refer anyone, and 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 that's just a, a, kind of like a domino effect of everything dropping uh, from this point in on. Versus if they come in and it's an amazing moving experience and everything as as promised, then that relationship is going to start great, All right? I-
0: I couldn't agree with you more. Um, The other tip that I'll give you, because I think that, you know, Joseph, you understand a lot more than most people about the idea of starting off a customer relationship on the right foot. And, and I think it gets lost in the, in the noise. A lot of people think about these deals as, you know, how am I going to flip this deal? And they forget about the customer, which the customer drives all of our business. But the other thing that we do with all of our properties, when we take over is we don't ever raise the rents right when we take over a property because we believe in the idea of giving before you take mm-hmm. and so what happens is we we typically give about 3 to 4 months for the the exterior renovations to happen and that you know that that 3 or 4 months gives us some time to show the residents when we first take over that hey we're going to invest in the property before we're going to start asking you to pay higher rents right and so once we're done with all that work and in 5 months or so after we 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 the property completely transforms, that's when we start pushing the rents on the classic units. And obviously, the upgrade units, that's you know when people are moving out. Obviously, that's a little different. But you got to be really careful with the classic units with people that are already paying rent when you buy a property and take over. Because if you are not sensitive to giving before you take, I think a lot of times you can see your, your occupancies um, you know, drop really for no apparent reason Then you just wanted to sort of get ahead of the curve on your rental race raising before you were able to show the customers that you're willing to put something into the property before you ask for something back. Right.
1: Yes. And, and like you said earlier, the customer have a choice and they chose that property before you bought it uh, because it was lower price. They knew they were getting less, but they were okay with that because of the lower price. Now you come in they're not getting any more and they're going to have to pay more than they have other options at that new price point that might give them a little bit more so you're absolutely right about that so on the flip uh, side of that coin of everything that we do to increase the income and 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 generate more uh, income there is saving costs right and and just the way multifamily formulas look like right the NOI is insensitive to which side of the equation you you increase income or you decrease expenses, your NOI is going to move in the same direction. So uh, what do you guys like to do in order to reduce costs?
0: Well, you know, um, that's always a loaded question. Um, what, What I would say is the first thing we always like to understand is that you know, certain things have a run rate and there's not much you can do about it. Like, you know, expenses to repair the property and to keep it in the shape that it's supposed to be in are going to be what they are, as long as we're not wasting money and doing unnecessary things. But, you know, you got to, you got to fix stuff when it, when it gets broken. Mm -hmm. So there's some things that we, we, you know, that we are going to assume that are going to continue on at at a, at a, you know, a, a good, a good run rate, but there's other things that you can absolutely do to, to save cost. One of the things that we found is um, a lot of properties that we take over are spending a lot of money on marketing. Um, What we found is um, the best uh, customer is usually referred by an existing customer if you're doing your job right and you're really focused on treating the customer the right way. And so you you might be surprised, but we don't spend any money with advertising at any of our properties with any of the big sites like apartments.com, etc., And the reason why is because we have a really good word of mouth um, with our properties in in terms of the way that we operate. Now, that's not to say that that we are perfect. Uh, I mean, we're really not perfect, but I think we do a good job of also apologizing where where we make a mistake and making it right. And so I think one of the areas that we have seen the ability to save money is is in reducing excessive marketing expenses. Um, Another area that comes to mind is um, we're actually um, I would say pretty good about the the cost model that we have in place for things like, um, uh, management fees and, um, and management related costs. Um, we pretty much try not to pass off a lot of the, you know, um, things that we may see other third party management properties or companies passing off to, um, to the property itself. So we keep it pretty lean and mean and pretty, pretty, um, pretty bare bones without sacrificing, um, the quality of experience. Um, you know, some of the other stuff, you know, insurance taxes, you know, that stuff's kind of, you just got to really work hard to, um, you know, make sure that your property tax consultant, if you're in Texas, which is a non-disclosure state, make sure that, um, your property tax consultant is doing a good job of getting your taxes down insurance. You, you, especially nowadays, insurance is going up. There's just no doubt about it. You really have to beat the bushes every year um, to get the best quotes you can. If you just set it and forget it with insurance, uh, you are definitely going to pay a, a high premium right now. So those are some things that come to mind.
1: Yeah, especially with the insurance. I, I, I want to second that one. Uh, you really have to push. Even if it's with the same agent, uh, don't just automatically take the renewal have asked them to shop around for you and and look at what the other options are what is your coverage do you need that coverage are you missing coverage that you really should have what is your deductibles all those questions should be asked every single year uh, because just the way the weather have been in the last few years there's more and more damages for the insurance companies to absorb, and then they are a business. They're not doing it for philanthropic reasons, right? When they absorb a cost, they're going to roll it over on the customer, which is us. So you really have to pay attention to these things.
0: You got that right. And I'll I'll give you another tip on the insurance side. Um, And anybody that's been in this business long enough will know this. Uh, Insurance brokers are notorious for sending you the pricing, literally like the day before your policy renews. And of course, there's, they always give you a lot of reasons why it got delayed and coming to you. But at the end of the day, if you've only got a day between the time that you see the price and the time that you have to renew your policy, well, guess what? You're probably going to have to stick with that same company because there's not enough time to do any due diligence with anybody else. So we always start, you know, uh, three months to four months ahead of time, getting quotes from other brokers and getting things done um, so that we've got a long runway of pricing so that we know that we're not going to get bamboozled at the very end and get a last minute quote and have to have that as our only option so um that's another tip i can tell you right away
1: that that that's a wonderful tip it really is uh, um uh, i i learned that one the hard way too uh, yeah we all did
0: <laughs> <laughs> and you just got to listen to your podcast and yeah. the next person probably hopefully won't have to go through what we you and i did
1: yeah well that's why we created this podcast uh to to talk about the real hard uh truth so um, do you have any interesting horror story, funny story, uh, 13 years in the business? I know that you have a lot of each, uh, g- give us a little, uh, a few stories.
0: I've got a lot of horror stories. Some of them I just don't want to expose publicly, but, um, here's the thing. Um, if you've been in this business the way I have long enough, um, anything that can go wrong usually will, um, at some point. And um, I've always, I'm a big believer that, uh, you know, and investors with, with us should always know this, is that um, you, you never pitch perfection. I think what you try to pitch is you, you pitch a, a very good amount of analysis that's going to show what you think is going to happen with uh, a, a, you know, a very high likelihood of it happening. But it really matters what happens and what you do when the, when the speed bumps or the problems do pop up. Uh, that's where you really kind of make your money with your investors by showing them that you are committed to problem solving and figuring out how to solve it and then actually making it work. Um, one of the things that comes to mind for me that I can tell you is we uh, we bought a property uh, several years back and we decided that we were going to go ahead as part of the renovation and, and and we bought this knowing is that we were going to have to uh, rip out um, window units. This property was older and it had uh, window AC units and they were a big problem for many reasons, um, including the fact that they were noisy, um, uh, very inefficient and they dropped a lot of water on the exterior of the, of the property. So it's constantly causing trouble with the wood rot. Uh, we decided we were going to replace them with uh, mini split, um, HVAC systems inside the units. Mm-hmm. So we bought the property, went ahead and did that, and it was a complete nightmare and the biggest thing that we learned from that whole experience was when you go in to to do something to a unit that is invasive uh, to the tenant's lifestyle that's where it becomes a really big deal you know if you're going to upgrade a unit when the person moves out that's one thing because you can do whatever you want to the unit while it's while it's vacant nobody cares right maybe the next door neighbors might hear a little bit of noise but for the most part not a big deal But when you're going to replace, let's say, like HVAC systems at every unit of the property you buy, imagine if your property is 95% occupied, there's only 5% of the units that are vacant where you can go in and do whatever you want and not interrupt anybody's life. But there's 95% of the units when you go in and you are creating a huge lifestyle deal to your residents and you are going to lose a lot of people and have a lot of really Pissed off residents when you're doing that reconstruction to those AC units. Even though your intention is good and even though the output's going to be good eventually, it's that super painful point of getting from A to B that's going to be a nightmare for you. So, one of the things that we learned through that process was we are very adverse to taking on projects where we have to do um, repositions that include things that are very invasive to the lifestyle of existing residents. Right out of the box, we're probably going to stay away from stuff like that. And based on that experience, I think for us, that's the right move. And I'm not here to say that you can't make it work. I mean, obviously, we recovered from that. The property is doing fantastic. And, you know, in hindsight, I'm glad we did it because it's a huge difference between window units and completely efficient and indoor uh, mini split systems. But, I mean, I, I tell you for crying out loud, that first year was just, it was very, very painful.
1: Yeah, I can, I can imagine. And that the reviews should follow up with this. Oh, and, uh, no. <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah, I'm glad we're over it. <laughs>
1: yeah. Okay, great. Any funny story?
0: Uh, You know, funny stories, gosh, I mean, a lot of funny stories happen all the time. Actually, one of my biggest uh, things that I get a kick out of is um, I get a kick out of uh, maintenance requests. Uh you know, I actually, if you can believe it, I still uh, get carbon copied on the maintenance requests that come through. I don't have a chance to read most of them, but you know, I try to pay attention where I can just to make sure that we're doing a good job. But I invariably see some pretty funny, um, maintenance requests that come in. Like I, I can remember this one, uh, person that wrote in and the email said, it said, ah, like a H H H H H exclamation, exclamation, exclamation point. It said, there's a, there's a mouse running around in my kitchen. I need it fixed immediately. And I just thought that was so great because they took the time to like capture the experience of what they were thinking right when it happened. And then they, cause they obviously they didn't submit that work order, like in the heat of the moment, right? They actually took, like I figured that they had to take out like maybe 30 minutes later or, or an hour or two days later and go back and relive that experience in their mind and then submit the work order. And so I just, to no end, w- w- and I still laugh at myself to this day, looking at the work order and I see like that ah, you know, like, like literally like you can picture them like jumping up and down with the mouse. And uh, I just, um, we don't want to have mice in our properties, but, uh, I thought that was a really innocent, but hilarious, uh, take on a work order that I saw that came through.
1: <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. Awesome. I want to be conscious of your time. Uh, one question that we, well, a couple of questions that we like to ask uh, our, our guests is one is what would be a really good advice that you would give someone that is just getting into the business, right? It's the first property they're going to operate. Uh, maybe they just purchased it or they're in the process of purchasing a property. Uh, what would you give them as an advice?
0: You know, my advice never changes. It's been the same as long as I've ever uh, been around and got started. It's uh, go long, not short, with your investment horizons. Always think long-term. Uh, you know, Real estate is a slow man's game. It's a slow and steady wins the race type of deal. And then the other thing is always focus on relationships before deals. You know, I see too many people that are focused on the shiny object and they go after it at all costs. Even if they burn bridges with people, that could help them do five or six deals after the first one. So, um, build relationships and and place that above everything. Um, because in the in the down times and the tough times, uh, with relationships you can make it through. But if you're kind of out there and you burned all the bridges and you're just kind of isolated out in the ocean by yourself, you're the first person that's going to get picked off um, when something bad happens. So, go long, not short and uh, build relationships and prioritize that over deals.
1: That makes sense. Uh, Thank you for that. And then the other question we ask everybody is if you could go back in time and and meet yourself as a younger person, uh, what advice would you give yourself? And no, you cannot tell yourself that 2009 was the bottom uh, of the recession, right?
0: You know, if I could go back in time to myself getting out of school, I think that I would have uh, given myself a copy of Rich Dad Poor Dad even sooner than what I, I was blessed enough to be able to read it as a younger person, but certainly not right when I came out of college. And I wish I, I wish that I had um, a read that book, but B actually read it with enthusiasm, with the understanding that it could change your life. Um, I think that a lot of concepts in that book did change my life. Looking back, and um, and I think that had I seen it sooner probably even would have been saved me even a couple other headaches that I had along the way.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. Well, JC, I want to say thank you again for your time today. It was a great conversation. We got a lot of really good advice and nuggets for our customers. Um, If our listeners want to reach out to you, uh, invest with you, ask you questions, how can they find you?
0: Well, uh, it's really easy. All they've got to do is go to our website, they can go to multifamilypropertygroup.com. Again, multifamilypropertygroup, just like our name, multifamilypropertygroup.com. And they can literally go to the contact us section of the website and request a uh, free 50 minute consultation with me. Um, I'm always willing to give my time. A lot of people have helped me along the way. And uh, if anybody else out there wants some help or some knowledge on what I've been doing and how I can help them, I am uh, always happy to do that. And it doesn't mean by the way, that they have to invest with us. That's not the objective. It's really to be a source of information first.
1: That's fantastic. We'll make sure to put a link in our show notes. Well, thank you so much. It's been wonderful.
0: Joseph, man, I really had a good time. I got to say that uh, I really enjoyed your questions. And this I've, I've done a few of these, and I'd say that you're actually pretty phenomenal at it. And I've, I really have had a good time. And I, I, would, I would say that uh, your show is going to be awesome.
1: Awesome. Thank you so much. All right, and bud. And for the listeners, if you want to listen to more of our podcast, uh, our website is aptopr.com, Apartments Operators, and we're on iTunes, Stitchers, anywhere you want. Uh, Just subscribe and leave us a review. Thank you so much, and we'll listen to you later.
0: Thank you for listening to our show. If you want to enjoy more episodes, please subscribe on iTunes, YouTube, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. For questions or feedback, please visit our site at www.aptopr.com.